0: In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. Hello and welcome to the TIPBS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. In this episode, we are delighted to interview Bonnie Goldstein and Rochelle Loresby. Sensory motor psychotherapy recognises that traumatised children are at the mercy of reliving their past through bodily reactions and that managing and recovering from trauma requires an awareness of physical, sensory experiences and strategies to modulate physiological and emotional responses. Dr Bonnie Goldstein holds dual licences in the state of California in psychology and social work, completed her BA, MSW and PhD at UCLA, her EDM at Harvard University and teaches graduate students at USC School of Social Work. Rochelle holds a PhD in child and youth care. Beginning with a career in forensic psychiatric nursing, she has 30 years of clinical experience in the areas of post-traumatic stress. Bonnie and Rochelle are interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy. I hope you find this interview interesting and useful.
1: Bonnie and Rochelle, thank you for joining us and speaking with me today. Glad to be here. Um, So I was wondering if perhaps we could start by um, you telling us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in working in the area of trauma.
2: Well, it's interesting that you ask our backgrounds. I'll start by saying that predominantly psychodynamic psychotherapy for a couple of decades. And then I discovered after hearing Dr. Pat Ogden speaking about sensory motor psychotherapy I discovered some tools that I thought I would add to my existing practice. And now, two decades later, it feels like my practice is predominantly sensory motor psychotherapy because I see the wisdom of utilizing that both in the educational realm and also in the therapeutic realm.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Um, So um, how many years has that been um, funny then um, with using that sort of modality?
2: Um, around the years 2000, I started reading and learning. And then um, 2002, Pat Ogden spoke at UCLA, and that launched for us in Los Angeles, the first of a series of trainings that now is burgeoning. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have a number of people in Australia, in each of our trainings, they come to Los Angeles because it's relatively easy to get to on the mainland. Mm-hmm. And- um, currently, some of our students in the advanced trainings, because there are many different levels of trainings, in the certification trainings and the competency trainings, are from Australia. So we're getting to understand your country and some of the feelings, thoughts, and challenges that you're facing there.
1: That's excellent.
3: And Michelle, you're teaching in Australia. I do teach in Australia. I teach sensory motor psychotherapy in Australia. I'm, I'm in fact, coming over on Sunday to do that. There you go. Yeah, so my background begins with psychiatric nursing, in fact. Uh, I worked with the Criminally Insane, so I got to see kind of the one side and both sides of this whole trauma relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I, I moved on to doing a master's degree in developmental psychopathology uh, in the education department here, and finally came around to a PhD in child and youth care. So I, the, the common thread for me has always been trauma work, at one level or another. My mm. my introduction to sensory motor was actually through EMDR, where I was trained to be an EMDR clinician or had that in my toolkit. And I saw Pat present Pat Ogden presented a conference in about the year 2000 mm-hmm. um, with Bessel van der Kolk. and that just piqued my interest. That it seemed like there was this layer of information uh, that we were missing in the EMDR um, applications, and so the the whole body piece mm. started to come to life for me then, mm. and I just started taking the training and became interested, and then followed that all the way up to becoming one of the faculty and traveling internationally to to help other people understand that body piece.
1: That's excellent. And I think that quite nicely leads into um, what sensory motor psychotherapy is. Um, did you want to perhaps tell us a little bit about, um, perhaps even define what sensory motor is and what the psychotherapy involves?
3: Do you want to take that one, Bonnie?
2: <laughs> So, when we're looking at our clients' histories and past, and we're interweaving what's happening now, so often we find that the body carries the messages, the experiences, that sense, that often unknown implicit awareness. Whereas many clients come and talk about their problems, their memories, their thoughts, they're unaware of what's going on within the mind-body connection, there's not a sense of understanding of how the body's responding even in the session, in the present moment. Sensory motor psychotherapy looks at the present moment. It's not that we don't want to know the story of the past, but we also are looking at what's happening right now, right here, and through the lens of bottom-up, the body and mind, each of the actions, reactions, even the micro movements and the smaller movements can be indicators that we can use as an access route mm. to understanding the meaning, to have a sense of the action reactions and the patterns of behavior, the patterns of thoughts. So sensory motor psychotherapy is interested from the story of the body to the story of that might have happened in a trauma from very early on, or a more recent trauma, or a series of traumas, often unknown until the work begins.
1: Mm -hmm. So, I do understand you've done some work with um, children in schools and things like that. How do you think what Bonnie's explaining about um, how trauma plays out through the body? How do you see that playing out with children and students um, in schools and classrooms?
3: Sure. So one of the things that I do is I speak to every graduating class of educators, no matter what their background, whether it be special education or the mainstream education. And I talk to them not only about emotional regulation, but also regulation just at the level of physiological arousal that they might be experiencing in the classroom. So they would see kids who maybe came from a contentious family situation come into the classroom, and they're all dysregulated. Mm. It affects their learning. They're not able to take in information because they're really trying very hard to manage Mm. what's going on inside right now, which Mm. is a leftover from what happened either recently or even further into their past. Mm. So educators are actually in a prime position to be paying attention to this information and with kids, they kind of live in that realm of the body and emotion. They don't always have
4: mm. the
3: sophisticated ways of expressing what's going on for them.
4: Mm.
3: So by, by talking with the teachers and saying, you know, have, do you notice kids, they kind of zone out or, you know, as, as there's a dynamic where you're looking down at them and they're looking up at you, mm. you feel like their eyes blaze over or they become very fidgety mm. um, or they could become very anxious. Well, if we scope out and pause and take a look at that through a concept that we call the window of tolerance, where they can actually take in information and integrate their experience, versus when they're blasted out into, you know, these anxious states or shutting down, then we can give teachers the skills to manage and help the kids modulate that arousal, as well as offer them emotional regulation tools because. Things like rage are outside the window. Things like anger are at the top of the window. We know that that affects our ability to learn. Mm -hmm. So sometimes what teachers need are those regulation skills to help the kids be in the window so that they can actually take in the information. And teachers are always very receptive of that. They'd say to me, why didn't I get this information sooner?
1: Yeah, yeah. I love
2: love that Rochelle brought up the window of tolerance. When we look at um, the foundation that Dan Siegel, when he first created the window, and we're looking at high arousal and low arousal, as Rochelle was describing, the teachers are often saying, now we have a concrete tool, Mm -hmm. the sensory motor application, sensory motor psychotherapy application of high arousal. When a child starts to become aware of it, you can help them mitigate their arousal. If they start to shut down or go down to dissociation or freeze, when they find themselves unable to engage, we can find ways together collaboratively to notice that. You can use the magnetic window where the kids can actually identify. I'm starting to feel anxious. I'm starting to feel worried. And then they can mark on this piece of paper on this window. I'm getting more and more agitated or I'm, I'm slowing down, I'm not sure, what did you just say? And they can start to track those experiences collaboratively. And that's the beauty because the teachers can lead them in, to understanding themselves.
1: Mm. I think that's what's powerful about it is that it's, um, it's a tool not just for the kids who've experienced lots of those challenges and are having trouble in class, but it's actually useful across the board for everyone really. It's, it's like a social-emotional skill that's beneficial for everyone. Um, and
2: teachers can be thinking about the window and what their own arousal is. Certainly as teachers, Rochelle and I teach, and we often know that certain students will trigger us. Our, our students are often adult students, mm. but it's the same pattern. So we can then find ways to regulate ourselves. Mm. We can calm our bodies. We can notice and take our feet and ground them into the ground so that our level of patience and Perhaps our resonance can mirror our students' resonance. We can shape ourselves as well as helping the students shape themselves.
1: Hmm. Um, so I had a bit of a question. Um, I think often teaching and doing this sort of work can be quite cognitive <laughs> for the you know the people kind of supporting the kids. Um, what has what been your experience in terms of uh, some of the things you've heard in terms of the change of practice or some of the barriers that you've kind of heard people talk about in terms of actually moving into the body and being more aware of that?
3: Sure. You can can imagine that for a lot of kids and a lot of later on adults, Hmm. body wasn't always their friend. It wasn't always a safe place to inhabit. Uh, And so we all have that relationship or past relationship. And that can be one of the first things that come up is, you know, I don't want to go there or it's not safe to go there. And there can be unconscious psychological um, mechanisms that will actually protect us from being able to go there. The kids kind of have a natural affinity to live in that world. And if we can make it lighter and more playful and more curious, then we can often, you know, that's just sort of a superficial barrier. Down the the continuum of dissociation where... Clearly, it has not been safe. Hmm. It takes a little longer, and that that may, in fact, be beyond the capacity of the educator to intervene at that point, and that may be a, a marker for referral.
4: Hmm.
3: Hmm. The way
2: to get into the dialogue can be by saying things like, I'm curious what's happening in your body right now, or I wonder, did you notice that right then when you started Doing this, your shoulders went up. It seems like, as we talk about that, something's happening inside you. Can we, together, look at what's happening right here with us? So those kind of gentle openings allow the teachers to find out what the child's experience is and also sense from them, together, in a collaborative manner, whether the kids are wanting to. And Rochelle's so right when she said, there are certain kids that this... Very micro, micro, small, small, little movements is seen as progress or no movement. But there are other kids who welcome, for example, movements such as a swing or a chair that has a bit of a rock. Very much in a sensory motor psychotherapy modality, we're able to introduce these things as self-regulators. And then if a child say sitting in a swing or a hammock or um, some of the different things that are on the play yard that move a large exercise ball where they can bounce, mm-hmm. their bodies might start to feel more collaborative and then their minds can catch up as the teachers encourage that.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I really like how you explain that because it seems really a focus on learning about being within your body and, and how things feel rather than it just being a tool to, uh, you know settle them down or calm them down so that you can get on with it but it's really a learning sort of experience isn't it
3: and it is a shared collaboration in doing that That right. the teacher is in in these cases or the psychotherapist is very involved in that process and checking things out and and helping the child discover you know what's not right what feels right how would you know you know if this hand could do something what would it want to do you can bring all of that in and make it a very collaborative it doesn't have to be an especially heavy psychotherapy session either
1: Mm -hmm. yeah um I, i was curious to hear about your thoughts about um i think it was um you rachel you spoke about some kids being more comfortable in certain parts of the window than others um and i think that's quite a useful concept for people to get their heads around because often Um, you know you you try lots of things and um, in terms of that kind of assessment and planning things it's about watching for quite subtle cues really isn't it and early sort of signs of them not being comfortable with that Did either of you have any thoughts about you know what people can look for and um, how they could perhaps think about starting from a place that's more comfortable for the child
2: often when we see a child curl up sort of like I'm doing now or and I call this turtling where their mm-hmm. head down and they lose eye contact we start we can immediately name that it's really mm-hmm. hard to talk about and even in our speech patterns our prosody we're able to slow down and focus on what we see and perhaps give them a menu and in sensory motor psychotherapy there's a menu of Um, hundreds of different ways to name what's going on in the body. So Mm -hmm. we can say you might feel um, some tingling or shaking or if we're seeing the little shivering, quivering, we can name those. Now they may resonate, they may say yeah, or they may not. Mm -hmm. So we float in there a possibility and then we play with possibilities as we're working
4: together.
1: That's great. Yeah. And um, I really like that um, piece about the speech and tone and the prosody. Uh, uh, I know Kay talks a lot about that to teach us about the tone of their voice and and the language that they use. Um, Did either of you have any thoughts about that?
2: Well, speech pattern and slowing down Hmm. allows for an implicit sense of collaborative slowing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll work with a child who has a lot of words. They mm-hmm. speak so quickly that there's hard, hardly any chance for me to get in there. Mm-hmm. And I might even take my hand and say, hold on a sec, I want to hear everything that you have to say, but just now I notice, and then I'll name what I'm noticing. My speech pattern slow, my body is joining in. Often this does more than anything else give them a clue if they're tracking me. Mm-hmm. And if they're not and they keep on going, they wait for breath to come up mm-hmm. and comment on their breath.
4: Mm-hmm. It's hard
2: to get out all those words and also breathe. I noticed you didn't breathe and all that, everything you told me. Mm-hmm.
4: and
3: then they become aware of their breath. It's another way to get in.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And Bonnie's really talking here about an application of of what we incorporate into sensory motor psychotherapy about the polyvagal theory and Mm. Stephen George's work about staying in social connection and using our own, our own capacity to regulate, to help regulate the child at the same time. Mm. We have also heard about mirror neurons. Mm. You know, if, if a kid is really antsy and I start to go up and be really antsy and think, Oh my God, we got to figure this out. We're both in trouble.
4: <laughs>
3: so if I start to use my own nervous system, my own body and my own prosody to slow it down with some gentle guidance. You know, let's just pause and and just use some gesturing to go with that. We're communicating on a on a different level. Whereas children I think in in schools are often familiar with the being told position. And and that creates a different dynamic, right? So and then the, the the educator feels like they're in a position where they need to know, mm-hmm. and that creates some tension for them too. And so now we have a a situation that's that's less likely to actually have a nice smooth resolution to it. We're kind of both in the deep end together.
1: Yes, Use um, Dan Siegel's um, hand model, the brain. We talk about flipping the lid and. Um, yeah. I often says, you know, two flip lids are worse than one, you know, when you have the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> so I quite like that. Um, so you, you've talked about this already, but I was wondering if there was, when you're speaking to people about the impact of trauma on the sort of sensory experience of children and the experience of the body, is there a metaphor or analogy that you found kind of cuts through to really kind of capture, um, that kind of phenomenon and how that works?
4: Hmm. Do you have one, Bonnie? I was
2: struck Gavine, by what yeah. you were describing with the hand model. Yeah. And the hand models. I'll go with that because if we yeah. take that analogy, we're really working together using this prefrontal cortex and the hand model with the prefrontal cortex and helping kids who love that mm. image mm. and they understand that image. And that can be an entree. That can be the way in. And then you're able to say, notice what happens when this part of the brain goes offline.
4: Mm. And that
2: happens when you're outside your window, Mm. uh, when you freeze, Mm. or when you get so anxious you can't think. Mm. Often kids, when they're taking a test, Mm. get so anxious they find their hands are sweaty. One child describes as he did his tests, his hands sweated so much that it ruined and smudged the page. Um, and then the print wasn't clear, mm. or he sat and he couldn't think mm. because his anxiety, he could hear his heartbeat.
4: Mm. So
2: we might say, let's notice when I put my hands here, I notice it calms me down. Do you want to try that? Mm. And we will often model that, or they might find it on their own. If they're talking and they're doing this, I'll say, your hands are going to your heart. Why don't we both try that? And see what happens
4: Mm
2: -hmm. one hand on our heart one hand in our tummy Mm -hmm. or the other way and be curious about it whether or not that helps to regulate and then go back to the hand model and say so much happens in our body the hand model includes the brain stem kids love to be able to say okay well this is my that core early um that phylogenetically that's my favorite word Mm -hmm. that long-standing learned um, way mm. of being, which is fight, flee, freeze. And then you start to model with them that the anxiety is part of that whole system. Mm. And if we can get back to not needing to fight, flee, freeze, if we can get back to calming the brain, we can also calm the body. Mm. So that isn't quite a metaphor, it's really taking an analogy that you started to a full circle as we mm. together collaborate now, Gavine.
4: Yeah.
3: When I talk with kids, I talk about it in terms of the reptile brain, the horse brain, and we talk about "Pop Goes the Monkey."
4: Yeah,
3: (laughs) that's great, Michelle. So that's that's how and kids resonate with animals, and they kind of get it right. They can feel what it's like to be a reptile, you know. What if you're um what, what's a Australian reptile, like a monitor or something? Uh,
1: yes, like a lizard. <laughs> we yeah, have lots of those.
3: Exactly. So they can, they can relate to that. And then what happens if you're more of a, um, a I don't know, what would be a horse in Australia? You could, horse. Throw, right. <laughs> horse. But then you get that pop goes the monkey and the ah. kids totally get what that means. It's like, Oh, it's, it's, I'm just in it now, full on. I can't, I don't know what's going on. Mm. I don't know how to get out. I've lost my ability to to think it through. So Mm. they they resonate with that little one. That could be your kookaburra.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Might start hearing them soon, actually. (laughs) Um, So I was just going to ask you, um, in terms of, um, sensory preferences and sensitivities for students, particularly, um, you know, ones who have got challenging behaviours. Uh, I think there's more awareness now that, that that's quite an important kind of aspect to hold in mind when trying to support ch- uh, children, particularly in the school, but just across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your thoughts about how best to understand that or assess that or have any sense of um, what they might require?
3: I th- I think for me, one of the first things is I wanna do is I wanna I wanna look at the strengths that the child already has. What what are they managing to do for themselves and how can I support that versus trying to teach them something new mm. and and maybe make them feel shameful about what's going on. So, I would want to work with whatever capacities they have first, and then I want to look at expanding or filling in some of the gaps. Yeah. But we, we talk about several principles that guide our work, one of which is organicity. And that is really about, you know, trusting that the child will have the capacity within them yeah. to reach their maximum potential, whatever that is. We don't have to determine that yeah. side of them. And that if we collaborate together, which is a principle we call unity, mm. and we allow the child the, the, the safe place and the safe relationship to, to grow to their potential,
4: mm. we're
3: going we're gonna to move along actually faster and more efficiently in the work mm. rather than trying to make them achieve something that their nervous system or that they psychologically or developmentally mm. aren't ready for. So those kids in, this, in the special ed class that have particular sensory challenges, we we may have to do that piece of work first and incorporate all of the psychology with it, with the encouragement, you can do this. Let's notice how you can feel this inside and, and what do we need to tweak in order to make this right for you. Um, and that's sometimes a different approach. But I, I think that more and more of special ed I work with several special ed teachers. That's much more of where they're coming from. It's less common in the mainstream classroom, I think. Through the lens of
2: strength-based, as Rochelle was describing, in sensory motor psychotherapy, we're looking for and building resources to help kids. So as Rochelle was just describing, we will see happening organically within the kid. um, There'll be something that seems to help them. And we can frame it that way, Mm
4: -hmm. even
2: if, say, in more of a psychodynamic lens, Mm -hmm. it might be perceived as resistance. And Mm -hmm. certainly that's how I might have looked at some of the children that I worked with in the past. Now I would say that very same behavior is a resource that keeps them stable. Avoidance, for example, to shut down and avoid um, is actually a strength if it allows you to tolerate a prior experience or a series of experiences or a lifetime of difficult encounters. But now we have a new way to do it. So we can frame it as such and say, here's what goes on. And part of you shuts down to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. I worked with a young girl whose brothers were violent. Mm -hmm. And she very quickly learned to shut down to get very, very small. Mm -hmm. And one of the tapes that we show in sensor motor psychotherapy is how she was learning and that in the room, as she worked with me, she could get big. So we invited him, bring your big, big, big strength and your loud voice and your loud body. And then we would go back. We would titrate we would do the dual movements back and forth. At one point she was a choo-choo train and she was running very, 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 very fast. And she had to slow down and stay present. So she's able to experience fast and slow, big and small, Mm. and then link it back Mm. to the meaning that now her brothers are older, she's more protected, the parents are involved, nobody's going to hurt her, and they've even stopped, the boys have stopped beating each other up. Mm. But you can see that that behavior that became a patterned response from when she was young was very adaptive, she needed to do that. As long as she disappeared while remaining in a room, she wouldn't be
4: pounced upon. That's a you
3: Govan, to give you a, 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 an in the classroom kind of an example that from a special ed teacher that I've worked with, you know, things like self harming behavior, like banging, head banging, that kind of stuff. Part of what we would see that as from this sensory motor psychotherapy lens as the child is trying to do something to regulate what's intolerable to them. Therefore, they're overwhelmed and likely outside their window. So we probably first want to do what we can to get them back in their window. Then we would want to work with them to understand what does this do for them and which case we can find resources to expand their options so they're not stuck in this same rut. You know, what would it be if when you're starting to feel this way, and for some of these kids they have the capacity to reflect on that and some don't, let's face that. But if you look at me when you start to feel that way and you use that code word and I come and attend to you, does it help you stay in your window so that you don't have to do that behavior that gets you into trouble and that you get a response that you don't like and then you don't feel like you like you very much and and all that. So we would work kind of in that way and then we would be able to expand their repertoire of resources so that they would develop greater and greater capacity and wider and wider windows to tolerate and be more flexible. That's gonna really support their learning because as they can take in more and distinguish and maybe put some noise aside that normally would put them over the edge, they can then stay with the lesson a little bit longer. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and um, those sort of self-harming behaviors are such a nice example because Um, you know, of needing to have a different approach to things because often quite a behavioral approach, it ends up being quite punitive, which in fact actually makes it even worse over time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And for some kids who say shut down and are not present, they dissociate, to get them up and walking can be an action plan that a teacher can do in just the very process of getting up and walking getting up and going to get a drink of water, wow. um, teachers can then have a way of reengaging, And the actual, the, the movement, the walking, the pounding foot on pavement can make such a difference. And if say on the play yard, there's an area that can be considered a mindful walking area or a mindful labyrinth. In our offices, we have a labyrinth in the back area. It's just a very small one, a circular walkway, but that's its purpose, the kids start to say, I think I need to get up and take a walk. Yeah. And that isn't seen as problematic behavior. That's resourcing oh. oneself. And it's a safe, pre-discussed area, with or without a teacher, yeah. that area can be walked on to regulate.
1: That's excellent. Yeah, Um and I had a couple other questions just about that, uh, you know, the whole idea of be- making things individualized, I, you know, it just struck me that it flies in the face of the trend of making things standardized <laughs> across the board. Um, and sometimes there's that sort of mindset that we bring to help kids with social, emotional things as well. Um, so for teachers who are listening to this, who perhaps feel as though this is quite a radically different way of working how, how would you say some of this fits in with just good practice so um, you know things that have been kind of done in the past to support um, students or kids
2: well every child in a classroom can benefit mm. from the psychoeducation that comes mm. to this dialogue we've had the sensory motor psychotherapy lens of collaborative psychoeducation mm. and Tools that all kids can use, for example, the grounding that comes by putting both feet on the ground. If I do that right now, and you can try it as well, mm-hmm. um, Divine. then my body goes up. And then that changes something inside my body, which we know will shift my brain, my thoughts, my feelings. And that can be standardized mm-hmm. for the breath. The breath awareness, the um, letting kids, not telling them to take a deep breath, but rather notice your breath. Mm -hmm. See what's happening right now with your breath, and then getting everyone in the class to share their experience. Then perhaps the students can lead one another in taking breaths. All of this being done when things are calmer, but then relying on that education when things are more challenging. Or as I
3: talked about earlier, the hand on chest is a regulator. Mm One of of the things that I noticed has happened, and this happens in psychotherapy too, when we teach a resourcing approach, people tend to take that as what we're supposed to do to intervene when people are outside the window. Mm -hmm. But most of these resourcing approaches are most effective if we practice them and they become part of what we do in our habits against those perhaps more undesirable habits. If we do them when we're within our window, we have a greater success of employing them when we start to get our window edges challenged.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So I know with a lot of my psychotherapy clients, they they will kind of take it in in the session, then they go home and they have kind of a meltdown. They say, well, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because it's not really established yet. And this this kind of trend that we're experiencing right now about mindfulness for children, mindfulness in the classroom, very trendy topics to be talking about and in some ways this is what we're talking about is a mindful approach but but in sensory motor psychotherapy we're using mindfulness in a very specific way to track very and notice very specific indicators like how fast is your heart racing not just leaving them to say what's going on inside and how are we going to fix this that's a little too much for us to handle. Mm-hmm. So by using things in a more specific way and to practice them as a group in a in a social setting as well as in dyads and to get the kids to teach the other kids creates a whole different dynamic. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that uh, the principles behind that are so foreign to teaching habits over the past but we are we are starting to challenge some of those conventions that we've had around for a while because our our all of our goal is to help the child and and, and get the child to you know be able to learn what they need to learn to become an adult
4: hmm.
3: or to just be a child for the moment you know we we do all have those common goals but we may have different ideas about how to get there
1: yeah i was talking to a occupational therapy colleague of mine who was talking about this idea of auto auto regulation this idea of having things in daily routines and rituals that um help kids stay in that window of you know tolerance and be able to stay there and that sounds quite similar to what you're describing there but needing to practice this periodically. We have a
3: we have a tendency to to value auto regulation over interactive regulation. That's not consistent across cultures, for one. Mm-hmm. There are many cultures that prefer interactive regulation because it it maintains the cohesiveness of the group and and many other reasons. What, What we're seeking for kids as they grow and develop is that they have flexibility in their regulatory style. When children are young, by the nature of their nervous system and their dependency of just because of where they're at, they require interactive regulation and, and we need to respect that, I think.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
3: and we do want to move them towards auto-regulation, but auto-regulation isn't the goal mm-hmm. necessarily. It's to be able to have more flexibility. Sometimes I need to be able to actually not auto-regulate and ask for help. Mm-hmm. That would be the, the appropriate thing to do, but we want to make sure that we're supporting the child to develop all those options.
4: Mm-hmm within
3: the family that they happen to be in right now, within the school system, and we're blending all of those different demands. So we are hoping that they, through maturity and through experience, either educationally or psychotherapeutically, gaining the flexibility of what type of regulation. So I think that's a really important thing to think about.
1: Now, that's fantastic. Um, I-, I love that idea of flexibility and the need to be able to use other people and co-regulate. Just had a couple more questions. Um, So in terms of being able to do that, I guess part of, uh, I know Kay talks a lot about is building trust and especially when you're, you know, getting kids to attend to the body, particularly kids who have been through difficult things. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you see that playing out in terms of building trust in this type of work?
4: The
2: individual approach as compared to what we talked about earlier with the group or collective approach is so important because trust means something different for everyone. So we want to be curious about what the meaning is. And some people trust too much. Mm. We want to help them build better boundaries or defenses or get more defended. Other people won't open a door towards trust Mm. because that might open their heart or their souls in a more painful way so it really takes the lens of understanding what we're looking for in trust Mm. or I would say what the buy-in is Mm. what we are offering the kids Um, sometimes just a little bit of attention is the buy-in other times even that slightest bit of attention or that eye gaze or the intensity of a teacher looking at a child is way too much at which point we might want to back off and give space and engage without the eye contact and being aware because we can see it with the kids. If I come up really close in my eyes and I'm trying to engage, some kids love that. Other kids, it's so dysregulating. And by watching the kids, that's our information.
4: We can
2: often start by watching and looking And that will give us a clue of where next to go. And then what next happens will give us a clue for Mm -hmm. what happens next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Great, no, that's really good. Um, Tuning into the kids and um, I think attending to how they are in the classroom. Um, And and being curious. Mm. That's back to, I think, Rochelle, you introduced that word
2: way back a few minutes ago. It's just such an important word. Mm. Curious about each individual kid. In the pro- is the beginning of building trust. To really be curious.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's excellent. Speaking of curiosity, <laughs> um, I was uh, thank you so much for speaking uh, with us today. It's been really interesting. Um, I was wondering um, if there were things in your work at the moment that you were still curious about uh, and wanting to learn more about.
2: Well, when Rochelle and when Yugavine were talking about. The differences Mm. cross-culturally. Within a community there are so many differences and if we're working towards making a more collaborative world and finding a way to help so many of the people who are in untenable situations, I'd love to learn more about and see the continued application of these sensory motor psychotherapy tools in the educational arena worldwide love to be part of that and also to hear about what other people are doing in this way.
3: Absolutely. I, I think part of what I'm really interested about, part the educator in me is how to take so many of these concepts, which are, are valuable, across disciplines mm-hmm. so that we can all kind of be on a similar understanding or or speak a similar language. Um, And to be able to, as Bonnie says that, take that out to the individuals that are in different cultures from our own, and yet be able to be there and be present with them and develop those things like trust and relationship in order to support the next generation of kids, Mm. um, you know, that really represent our future (laughs) in Mm. this world. So, yeah, lots of interest. I dabble in things like neurofeedback. I dabble in... You know, lots of different areas um, about how, to do, how best to deliver educational methods to teachers themselves, also to work with kids. So we, at Sensory Motor Psychotherapy, we are currently involved in developing a, a children's program that takes a lot of our work, specifically uh, makes it down and usable at the child level.
2: And we have a few articles. You can go to sensorymotorpsychotherapy.org where I believe there are four or five articles on children and child work with sensory motor psychotherapy. I know Pat Ogden and I have written a few articles on groups with children mm. with motorcycle therapy. So those articles are available, um, as is the curriculum, because Rochelle is teaching in Australia. It, it offers a door to people, they don't have to come all the way to Los Angeles.
1: <laughs> Rochelle, did you want to just share with us any details about your um, workshop here?
3: The trainings? Well, yeah. we offer, we at Sensory Motor, we offer three levels of training. Um, and I think it'd be really great, the first level of training for educators is really largely about how to navigate that window of tolerance, how to develop greater capacities and resources, And I think that would be a great future opportunity to come and spend some time with the educators. Um, I have spoken with the people at the Australia Childhood Foundation because I believe they have an educator program. And we've talked about maybe bringing that piece of it, especially, um, into Australia. So uh, stay tuned, really, for that. At the moment, our training is limited to people who have a psychotherapy or a mental health practice um but you never know what what might be down the pipe Mm In, in australia in
2: 2018 uh gotcha. 2018 and i know that's open to educators so that's one more um uh, joe tucci's program nice. which you said goodbye and you know about
4: yep.
2: is open to educators psychotherapists and it will give an, um a day of that um in certain areas and i know pat ogden is teaching in November of this year um, mm-hmm. she'll be down in Australia teaching and then again next summer so there's access to the information both live and also uh, these kind of programs such as this beginning that we started today this foundation we're laying today
1: yeah. that's excellent and we'll include um, links to all of these um, training opportunities um, and the Training Morta psychotherapy website as well um thank you so much for taking time out of your day um it's been um really um interesting and useful and really practical it's great to hear all the practical stories so we really appreciate your time thank you bonnie and rochelle
2: thank you Dana, and thank you rochelle what a
3: fun way to connect thanks govine it was really nice to be able to connect with people and and please if you ever come across me come up and say hi
1: Yeah, it would be great to speak again, yeah.
0: That was our interview with Bonnie Goldstein and Rochelle Bay from Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute. Thank you to Bonnie and Rochelle for sharing their practical insights. To access the resources and websites discussed in the interview, check out the show notes by visiting our website at www.tipbs.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.